If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Revelation chapter 15. In chapter 15, we will be introduced to the seven angels who in chapter 16 will pour out the seven bowl judgments on earth. So we had the seven seal judgments first. And in them, the earth was subjected to great suffering and tribulation. And we were told that as a result of those seal judgments, a fourth of the earth was devastated. Then came the seven trumpet judgments, where again, both believer and unbeliever alike on the earth was subjected to suffering and tribulation, great suffering and great tribulation. And there we were told in the trumpet judgments that a third of the earth was devastated. A third is bigger than a fourth. And so we saw an escalation of violence and volatility in these judgments from the seals to the judgments, to the trumpets. And now, beginning here in chapter 15 and continuing into chapter 16, we will see the bowl judgments. And with the bowl judgments, there are no more fractions. Now the whole earth will be devastated. And we will get to the details of those bowl judgments beginning next week as we cover them in the next chapter. But in chapter 15, we're introduced to them here. And we're told about these seven angels who will pour them out. But as we look at the structure of chapter 15 of the book of Revelation, we have what scholars call an inclusio. An inclusio is just a literary device where kind of the main point of a passage has bookends on either end that parallel one another, and the point is the emphasis is drawn to what is in the middle, in between those two bookends. And we have an example of an inclusio here in chapter 15. If you'll notice, the seven angels with these seven plagues are introduced to us in verse 1, but we don't hear anything more about them until verse 5. And what we have in the middle in verses 2 through 4 is the celebration of the redeemed in heaven. Grammatically speaking, what this means is that this section, those, those verses there, are the main point. It's kind of like a, a highlight, a neon sign saying, focus here, this is really important. Summarize the structure of chapter 15. We have the wrath of God in verse 1, the celebration of the redeemed in verses 2 through 4, and then the wrath of God again in verses 5 through 8. And so we're going to cover the wrath part, and we're going to see how it introduces the bold judgments that are to come in chapter 16, and we'll talk about how they are connected to the celebration of the redeemed, because there is a connection to them, but I want us to focus our time and our attention on that middle part, this amazing vision of the redeemed of God celebrating the victory of God in heaven as they sing about who God is and what he has done. So let's read together Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. 
This is the word of God, church. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Let's pray together. Our Father, what an honor and a privilege it is to gather as your people and worship your name and to sing of your majesty and your glory. And Father, we ask that you would continue us in a spirit of worship as we attend now to your holy word. Oh, Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us in this book that you have given us your very breath. Every single part of your word is inspired by you and profitable for your people. And so we ask that you would profit your people this morning from the proclamation of your, of your word. We ask, Father, that you would give us an understanding of this. And we ask, Father, that you would bear spiritual fruit in the church of God this morning through what we see in your word. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. And so let's look first at the wrath of God as he introduces the concept of the seven angels with the seven plagues in verse 1. John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So John sees another sign, but it's not just another sign. It's one that he hasn't described elsewhere like this. He says that it is great and amazing. Some translations say great and marvelous. What is it? It is the seven angels with seven plagues. And so we had the seven seals that were opened by the lamb, the scroll. And then there were the seven angels who blew the seven trumpets, and now there are seven more angels, and these come with seven plagues. We've seen the word plague before in the book of Revelation. The sixth trumpet, if you recall that, out of the, at the call of the, the sixth trumpet, the blowing of the sixth trumpet, 200 million soldiers on horseback came forth and brought devastation on the earth. 
And we're told that out of these horses' mouths came fire and smoke and sulfur. And, and these, uh, these three, the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur, were called the plagues of the earth. And they killed a third of mankind. We also see the two witnesses in chapter 11. They were, we're, we're told that they were given the ability to strike the earth with plagues of many kinds. This word plague can also be translated into the English word wound. And we saw this very word used in chapter 13 when we were told about the first beast, the Antichrist, who had received a wound, that mortal wound which had been healed. And so these seven angels are bringing with them seven plagues or seven wounds which will wound the earth and wound those who live on the earth, and it will be terrible. And we'll learn about them in the last few verses of chapter 15, that these seven plagues are manifested as the seven bold judgments. But in using this word plague here, what John is doing is recalling to the mind of the reader the plagues of Egypt. Because as we'll see, when, when God delivered his people out of the hands of the Egyptians, uh, he uses plagues to do that. And God will do the same here. In fact, we see a reflection of the plagues of Egypt in these seven bowl judgments as we'll unpack them in the next chapter. But the use of this word plague here prepares us to see that story of deliverance and the judgment of the Egyptians as the Old Testament background to this story of judgment in Revelation. Now John tells us in verse 1 that these plagues are the last. They're, they're the last ones. And we're told why. Because they, with them the wrath of God is finished. So these plagues will be the last of the tribulation. The last of the judgments. Not the last judgment per se, because we still know, as a result of what we'll find in chapters 19 and 20, that the, the, the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon, Satan himself, will still need to be dealt with. And they won't be dealt with until chapter 19 and 20, after Jesus returns. But as far as the judgments of the tribulation prior to the return of Christ... John says these are the last. This is the very end of them. These seven angels with these seven plagues. They are the last judgments that hold out the hope of the gospel for sinners. And tragically, when we get to the next chapter and we see these bold judgments being poured out, which hold out the hope of the gospel, for the most part, the earth dwellers refuse it they refuse to repent they refuse to call on christ and trust in christ but stubbornly hold fast to their sin and rebellion even in the face of these last judgments so john introduces us here to these seven angels with seven plagues but then in verse two it's almost as if he interrupts himself he introduces us to the seven angels with seven plagues, but then he abruptly shifts to tell us about something else that he sees in this vision. 
And he doesn't return to those seven angels until verse 5. And this tells me that this celebration of the redeemed, which we come to now in verses 2 through 4, occurs at the same time as the seven angels are preparing to receive the bowls and pour them out on the earth. This happening at the same time. And, and so John sees also what appears to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. John mentioned a sea of glass in his throne room vision back in chapter 4. There he called it a, a sea of glass like crystal that was before the throne, reflecting the glory of God to those who were there in his vision. Here he calls it a sea of glass that is mingled with fire. Perhaps it's mingled with fire because it's found within the broader context of the judgment that's occurring on earth in this time. But regardless, we tell, this tells us and reminds us that what we have here is a heavenly vision. This takes place in heaven. And the seven angels are going to receive these bowls from one of the four living creatures there in heaven. And then they're going to pour them out in chapter 16 on the earth below. So this part of the vision takes place in heaven. Now why is that important? Why is it important that we see that this takes place in heaven? Well, because of who John says he sees standing on that sea of glass. Look at the rest of verse 2. And he sees also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside, the Greek grammar there uh, could be beside or on, I think it better fits that they are standing on the sea of glass. So they're standing on the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And so John sees this in heaven, mind you. He sees this in heaven, those who had conquered the beast. Now remember, the beast at this time is still on the earth persecuting the church. And the image of the beast that we learned about in chapter 13 is still on the earth deceiving the nations into worshiping the image. And the earth dwellers are still down there receiving the mark of the number of his name. So the beast is still down here doing his dirty deeds. And he will continue to do so, and he will continue to persecute the church all the way through, presumably, the end of the bold judgments through chapter 16. Because the beast is not finally destroyed, as we learn, until the end of chapter 19, after the return of Christ. And so, get what's under, understand what's happening here. In what sense can, can these be set, in what sense can it be said of, of these folks who are in heaven that they conquered the beast if the beast is still on earth persecuting the church? How can it be said of them that they conquered the beast? Well, that can be said of them in the same sense that it could be said of the great dragon, Satan, back in chapter 12, who also was conquered. There we were told that the martyrs who had been killed by the dragon had conquered him. Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 says, 
And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Now, if you remember the story in chapter 12, that wasn't the end of the dragon. Remember, the dragon then uh, was defeated in heaven, and he came down to earth, and he continued to pursue the woman, which represents the community of faith, the church, and the offspring of the woman, the, the offspring of the church, the believers, continued to persecute the church, continued to attack the church and deceive them. And so in what sense can it be said that they were defeated? That they defeated the dragon in the very, very same sense. So we learned there that, that those martyrs who had been killed by the dragon, that they conquered the dragon. They conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And that the dragon's efforts to deceive them and cause them to be unfaithful to the lamb had been wholly unsuccessful. The dragon's efforts had failed in his efforts to keep them from persevering. And the same thing is happening here in this story in heaven. These who had conquered the beast, they, they had not stopped the beast from doing its evil work of persecuting the church, but they had conquered the beast in their own lives, such that the beast had failed in its efforts to prevent them from remaining faithful to the Lamb. They had been faithful. And they had been faithful even unto death. Because now they're in heaven. And their battle against the beast is over. And they had won. This theme of conquering and overcoming has been, I hope you've noticed, a consistent theme as we've gone throughout the book of Revelation. Over and over and over again, we heard Jesus exhorting the churches of first century Asia Minor as Jesus dictated the letters of chapters 2 and 3 uh, through John to those churches. He exhorted them over and over and over and over again to be the ones who overcome, to be the ones who conquer. And then we're told the result of that. And over and over again, we're reminded that we overcome and we conquer by the blood of the Lamb. But now we learn that conquering and overcoming doesn't mean defeating sin and evil. That is Jesus' job. Sin and evil were dealt its mortal blow. They received its, their, their mortal wound at Calvary. For their sin and evil were defeated. And so now we know that their days are numbered. And there is coming a day when sin and evil will be no more. For they along with the beast will be thrown into the lake of fire. But that's not our job. That's the lamb's job. And he's done it. And he will complete it. But our job, our responsibility is to conquer sin and evil in our own lives. To overcome suffering in our lives and tribulation in our lives and to whatever degree persecution in our lives by the blood of the Lamb. And we do so even if it means our physical bodies succumb even to death in this world.
or even in death. Through faith in Christ, we are overcomers. Because Jesus' resurrection points to our resurrection. Death in this life is not the end. It points to life everlasting for those who have hope in Christ alone. Just as Jesus said to Martha, when when, when Jesus rose her brother Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, will live. Yet shall he live. So even in his dying, he who believes in Jesus conquers the dragon, conquers the beast. And whatever other force of evil that tries to keep us from persevering in the faith. And so overcoming suffering in the world, conquering sin and evil and rebellion against God in our own lives and persevering in the faith no matter what persecution might come our way. It's not about us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and trying harder to be a better Christian. It's not about us putting forth uh, more effort and trying harder. No, it's about, it's about believing. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. It's about believing. It's about continuing to believe. It's about persevering in faith and never giving up on Jesus, no matter how hard it gets in our lives. That's who these are who John sees in verse 2. Those who conquered the beast. They were martyred by the beast. But in their martyrdom, they conquered the beast. The beast of today, that which is persecuting the church today, that which is deceiving the church today and and trying to pull the church away from Jesus, that beast, whatever form he takes in our day, friend, is still at work and is still active in the world today. The question is, will we give up on Jesus, church, and so prove to be like those who had the mark of the beast, or will we refuse to give up on Jesus, refuse to stop trusting him, and will we stay faithful to Jesus no matter how hard it gets, and so prove ourselves to be like those who conquered the beast, to be like those who are the company of the redeemed. Now John records for us that these who conquered the beast, uh, they, had, they had harps in their hands, uh, which again is, is symbolic, it's figurative, it's symbolically representing a song that is uh, celebratory and, and victorious. And they sang a song in verses 3 and 4. And John entitles their song, the, the Song of Moses, the Servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb. Not that there are two songs, but one song with two titles. The Song of Moses. Uh, again, a, another reference to the Exodus. We've, we've already seen him refer to the Exodus. Now he's doing it again and calling this the Song of Moses. And we found that song as... as uh, we read from earlier in Exodus chapter 15 after the Israelites crossed over the Red Sea. And indeed, much of the content of this song is a reflection of that song which we see in Exodus 15. 
But calling this song of the redeemed here in heaven the song of Moses is John's way of equating God's deliverance of Israel out of the the evil and treachery of Pharaoh, equating that with the Lamb's deliverance of the church out of the evil and treachery of the beast. Look with me at the lyrics of this song. Verse 3 says, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. So they sing about God's deeds. They sing about God's ways. And they say they are great and amazing and that they are just and true. I'll try to wrap your mind around that. These who sing this song were killed by the beast. The enemy of God. The enemy of God's people. He ended their life. And yet they sing. Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God the Almighty. Church, God's deeds included allowing the beast to persecute the church and roam the earth and ultimately bring these to the end of their earthly lives. And yet, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. The nations were being judged. The earth dwellers were having the full wrath of God being poured out on them. And yet these in heaven sing, Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. God's ways included the wrath of God being poured out full strength on those who reject His Son. And yet your ways, O King, true. Their song continued in verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? And, and isn't this what the angel who had the eternal gospel in the previous chapter, isn't this what he called for in proclaiming that eternal gospel? To fear God and glorify his name. And the redeemed in heaven cry out, Who will not do this? The answer to their question is nobody. That's the answer to their question. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Nobody. No one will not do that. In other words, all will. As, as Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2, therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, and I take that to be an eschatological proclamation of the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, at that time, every knee will bow. And he tells us where? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, all will fear him. All will glorify his name. And why? Because as the song goes on to say, for you alone are holy. You alone are set apart. You are different. None is holy like you are holy, God. None is like you. You alone are 
holy. And all the nations will come and worship you. Again, Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And why? The end of the song, for your righteous acts have been revealed. They've been unveiled. Remember, that's what the word revelation, the word apocalypse means. It means the unveiling. God's righteous acts, who he is, what he has done in redemptive history will be made plain for everyone and they will all see and glorify God as a result of it. This is the song of the redeemed in heaven. This is the song of those who conquered the beast. This is the refrain, the content, the thematic content of the song is the refrain of the redeemed in heaven. And, and, and notice, nowhere in these lyrics do they toot their own horn. Right? Nowhere here do they extol their own efforts at conquering the beast. Nowhere here do they brag about their own courage and bravery. Instead, they extol the character and the virtue of their king. Great and amazing are his deeds. Just and true are his ways. Even the harshness, as it seems, of his judgment. It is just and true, and his acts are righteous. Now put yourself in the position of the first century believers in the churches of Asia Minor who first received the revelation from John. As they read these words, as they considered this part of John's vision, how would they have responded? Remember, they were being persecuted already in the first century. As we read in the letters to them from Jesus in chapters 2 and 3, Already the imperial cult of the Roman Empire was active and influential in this day and time. And those who did not bow and worship and pay homage to the emperor were met with serious consequences. Financial, emotional, spiritual, and sometimes even physical. And so the readers of John's vision in the first century, churches of Asia Minor would have been presented with a very clear challenge here from this part of the vision. Those who stood against the beast, they read, were killed. They were killed. But in their death, they conquered the beast. And they ended up celebrating their king's victory in heaven. And those who gave in to the beast, they lived for a time, but ultimately ended up having God's just wrath poured out on them. And I think that those in the first century church who truly understood this would have concluded, I want to be a part of the redeemed. I want to be a part of that. I want to conquer the beast of our day, the, the imperial cult or, or whatever it was. I, I want to conquer that beast through the blood of the lamb. And I want to sing the song of Moses. I want to sing the song of the lamb, even if it means the end of my life in this world. I want to be a part of the redeemed. Friend, if that is the cry of your heart, that is the genuine desire of someone who desires to be right with God. 
And the scriptures tell us that the only way to be right with God is to trust in Jesus Christ as our only hope for rescue. To trust in his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his subsequent resurrection for our justification. And if you have so trusted in Christ, then friend, you are part of the company of the redeemed here. And this is your song. This is the song that your life sings to God. And this is the song, the content of which you will sing for eternity. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. That, Christian, is your song. But if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, as the only hope you have for rescue from the judgment that we all deserve because of our rebellion against God, then what awaits you is not a celebration of redemption, but instead an awful expectation of the wrath of God. For this celebration of the redeemed is is followed now immediately after by a return to the seven angels with the seven plagues. Look at verse 5. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. Now, John is melding together two Old Testament images there, the temple and the tabernacle. The the sanctuary of the Lord in Jerusalem and the tent of witness in the wilderness. And together, they draw emphasis to the dwelling place of God. So this is the sanctuary of God in heaven. And so it's opened, we're told. And out of the sanctuary, verse 6, came the seven angels with the seven plagues. So this symbolizes that they're coming from God at His command. They, they, they are not doing this of their own accord. They are being sent by God. The, the, the doors of the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven are, are opened up and these seven angels with seven plagues come forward. They who will pour out the wrath of God in these bowls in judgment on the earth. Which means, church, that these bowls filled to the brim with the wrath of God have been held in check by the patience of God until this point, until now. John notes that These seven angels are clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes across their chest. It reminds us of the priestly garments of the Levitical priesthood because these seven angels will be acting on behalf of God in pouring out this wrath. Verse 7, And one of the four living creatures, the, the mightiest of God's angelic beings, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God 
who lives forever and ever. Remember, we said that the wrath of God is none other than the anger of God against sin, justly applied to the guilty in judgment and retribution. And here John reminds us that God is he who lives forever and ever. He emphasizes the eternality of God, contrasted with the the dragon and the beast and the false prophet who will be destroyed forever in the lake of fire. Not God. He goes on forever and ever. And then John tells us in verse 8 that the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Reminds me of the vision of the throne room of God that Isaiah the prophet receives in Isaiah chapter 6. In his vision, he sees the Lord seated on the throne, the train of his robe filled the temple. The seraphim were flying around, singing to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the prophet tells us, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Just like here. The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God from his power such that no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues. Understand what's happening here. As the seven angels receive the bowls filled to the brim with the wrath of God, as they prepare to pour them out The stirring of the wrath of God, agitated by a display of his glory and power, fills the heavens with smoke. What an awe-inspiring vision this must have been for John. And just like it did with Isaiah, the, the vision this vision of the, of the glory and power and holiness of God ought to bring us to an end of ourselves and recognize that we are in the presence of something different from us. We are in the presence of holiness. After Isaiah sees the temple filled with smoke, he says to himself in verse 5 of Isaiah 6, Woe is me! For I am lost. Some translations say, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. He recognizes his own fleshliness. That he's not like that. He's not holiness. He's a man of unclean lips. He says, I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw the glory of God made manifest. And it made, made him come to grips with the fact that, that he's not that. That he's a sinner in need of redemption, in need of forgiveness, in desperate need of grace. 
that he was not worthy to stand in the presence of such holiness and glory. And likewise, when we behold this display of God's glory and power in this vision, as it fills the sanctuary of God in heaven with smoke upon the delivery of these bowls of wrath, we too ought to be brought to the end of ourselves. We're not like that. We are sinners in desperate need of grace. We are sinners in desperate need of rescue. And we are not worthy to stand in the presence of such glory and holiness. And apart from Jesus' substitutionary death, we are not and will not. It ought to create in us true humility and deep and genuine gratitude for God's sovereign plan to redeem sinners like us back to him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So we have the wrath of God, followed by the celebration of the redeemed, and then a return to the wrath of God again here at the end of chapter 15. And now the stage is set for the pouring out of God's wrath in chapter 16. So as I think about application to this chapter and this particular vision, I think, I think a right application of this passage revolves around two words, worship and mission. Worship and mission. The kind of worship that I think this chapter demands from us is one that seeks to offer a sacrificial offering of worship to God. Sacrificial offering. Now, when I talk about a sacrificial offering, I'm not talking about a financial offering, though that is one way that we can honor and worship God. Worship is more than making a financial sacrifice, but it is not less than that. So we ought to ask ourselves, is our giving sacrificial? Is it done out of a genuine desire to to see God honored and glorified and exalted? No matter the amount, is it an expression of sacrificial worship to God? When I talk about worship, I'm not talking just about singing corporately to God. Though again, that is certainly part of how we glorify Him and honor Him Again, worship is more than corporate singing, but it is not less than that. And so when you sing, no matter how well you sing, right, we're told to make a joyful noise, not a good one. But is your worship joyful? Does it come from a place in you that has been transformed by the grace of God? And is it a sacrifice of praise that you offer to God? In in just a moment, we're going to close by singing to God corporately and worshiping Him together. And we're going to sing, How Great Is Our God. And it is a proclamation of just that. The greatness and the glory of God. And I want to challenge you, church, To not whisper it, but to sing as if you are making an offering of worship to God. Please know, church, that our God is supremely glorified as his saints sing of his greatness. And so let us glorify our great God this morning.
But worship is more than giving. It's more than singing. It is offering our very lives as a sacrifice of praise. These in John's vision did just that even unto their death. And in their dying, they conquered the beast. The beast, the the spirit of any Christ, which we have spoken about often, is still at work in the world today. The power of sin and temptation, we know, is still at work in our own flesh. Suffering and tribulation and even persecution exists for the church today in our world. And the enemy seeks to use those things to cause us to give up on Jesus. And the degree to which we fight against sin, the degree to which we pursue holiness in our lives, and the degree to which we daily choose to do things God's way, not the way of the enemy, determines the quality of our sacrifice of praise to God with our lives. And so church, let us offer to our God lives of sacrificial worship. As Paul famously said in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that means your whole life, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship He goes on to say, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. May this be the kind of worship that we offer to our king because we are completely convinced that he deserves it, every bit of it. And then the last kind of worship this chapter demands is an enduring kind of worship. This is not about offering our lives to Jesus once and then that's it. This is about a daily choice to endure whatever it is that this world would throw at us and never give up on Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and may I suggest that that cloud of witnesses includes the company of redeemed who have gone on before us, who are singing the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he says, let us lay aside every weight. That is everything that hinders us from living for Christ in this world. Let us throw off every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us, he says, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, the joy that is before us is this vision of the redeemed, singing not only of the glory of our King, but singing to the King, and singing to the Lamb, and the hope that we will be part of that company of the redeemed one day. May the, may the joy of that scene Help us to despise the shame of suffering for Jesus in this life, whatever form it may take, so that we may run with endurance the race that is set before us to offer to our Lord a life of sacrificial worship to him day after day after day until he brings us home.
And then, finally, the proper application of this chapter should also compel us to mission. The vision of the wrath of God should compel us to mission for two reasons. First, out of a love for others, out of a love and concern for the lost around us. The just display of his wrath ought to compel us to bring the gospel to those who stand under it so that they might escape it by grace through faith in Christ alone. And then secondly, it ought to compel us to mission because of our love for God. Because we are so convinced that our God deserves the worship of the nations that we want to see him get it. John Piper is quoted as saying that missions exist because worship doesn't. And as long as there are tribes and language and peoples and nations that do not worship God because they do not have access to the gospel, that's our job is to bring it to them. But one day, every tribe, nation, and people will be represented in that Revelation 7 scene. And the job of missions will be done. And so until then, may this vision of this chapter even lead us to genuinely worship the Lord with our lives and faithfully engage in taking the gospel to the nations for his glory. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. And Lord, I just pray that even now, as your saints wrestle with this text and seek to figure out how to live in light of this already determined future, I pray that you might grant grace as we recall so many ways in which we have not lived lives of worship for you. And how we have not faithfully engaged in the mission. And we're thankful, Father, that there is grace even for that because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for us. And so we thank you for that, Lord, but we do, we do want to live in light of this. And so, Father, give us a grander vision of your glory. May this vision even of the throne of God filled with the smoke agitated by your glory and your majesty and your power fill our days and our lives such that we live lives of sacrificial worship to you. Every moment of the day that we live for you and that you might receive that worship because we know you deserve it. And Father, would you compel us out of a love for others and out of a, a desire to see you worshiped and glorified by others to take the gospel to the nations that begins with our next door neighbors and those in our workplaces and extends literally to the other side of the globe. Use us, Father, as yours, your ambassadors until that day when you welcome, welcome us home as well. We thank you, Father, for this truth. Apply it to our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.